But right now, we're back in the book of Isaiah. And the word of God in the book of Isaiah uh, says the following for each and every one of us. Let's hear God's word for our hearts. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair and the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring of the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts... And as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts. Would you pray with me? Ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word for our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God causes your salvation, your righteousness, and your praises to sprout up among the nations. Father, we are a testimony of the power of your word to bring about what you desire. Lord, this morning, as we're gathered to hear your word, would you speak to our hearts in a way that would encourage, in a way that would strengthen, in a way that would confront, in a way that would um, comfort. We pray all this for the glory of the name of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, the first three verses of Isaiah 61 introduce us to a special mission that God has entrusted to his servant. We know that it's a special mission because we see how much detail is given to describe this mission that this servant, this anointed servant of the Lord uh, has. We see seven verbs in the first three verses that describe the mission of this anointed servant. Uh, there are seven verbs that all start with to. 
to bring good news, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to comfort, to grant, and to give. The string of seven verbs indicates how desperately needed was the renewal of God's people. The people to whom God is sending this message of Isaiah 61, uh, the people to whom God is sending his anointed one, are the poor, the brokenhearted, are those who are in bondage, are those who are mourning, are those who have faint spirit. To such people, God takes the initiative to send a message. And it's not just any message. It's a message of hope. It's a message of restoration. It's a message of renewal. Therefore, I entitled my message this morning, The Great Renewal. How is God planning to accomplish this great renewal? Well, let's, uh, we're going to look at three points here from this chapter, um, how God is planning to accomplish this great renewal that he is sending to his people. The first point will be that God's renewal comes through his anointed one. Second, God's renewal affects his people. Third, God's renewal is his gift. Let's look at each of these points from this passage and see that God's renewal is God's plan to bring his restoration, but he does it, he does it through an anointed one. In verse 1, on first sight, it's unclear who the speaker is at, as, a, as a chapter begins. As a matter of fact, if we keep reading the chapter, we see several times that there's a, a speaker who speaks in, in first person, I or me. And it's, at one point, it's clear it's God later in the chapter. But then at the beginning of the chapter, we are uncertain who exactly is speaking these words. It's not God because he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and the Lord has sent me. So it's not the Lord. It's someone the Lord has sent. Who is this anointed one? And, and then what, what was he sent to do? Let's look at these questions for a second. Notice what God has done to send the special agent to accomplish the mission. Verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Now, the, spread, the, the expression, the Spirit of the Lord, <clears throat> appeared for the first time in the book of Isaiah in chapter 11, all the way at the beginning of Isaiah, where uh, we are told uh, the following in chapter 11, verse 1, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And if we keep reading that description, we find out that the shoot coming out of the stump of Jesse is a royal descendant, a king to whom God will give authority to judge the nations and even to kill the wicked. In Isaiah, as, as the book of Isaiah unfolded, we also saw four songs or four poems that speak about the servant of the Lord. And the last of those poems, or the last of those songs, have spoken about the, so the servant that has taken upon himself the sins of God's people. When we come to Isaiah 61, the one speaking in chapter 61, it's possible that it's the same person mentioned in Isaiah 11, and the same person as a servant of the Lord that has been mentioned in the four songs. And yet, interpreters debate whether or not, or do we know for certain who the who the speaker is in, in chapter 61, well, all that confusion should be laid to rest when we go to the New Testament. It's amazing that when Jesus began his ministry, 
he began by being baptized. And after being baptized, the Spirit fell upon him in a visible way. Not that that Jesus didn't have the Spirit beforehand, but it was a visible manifestation that the Spirit is descending to prepare Jesus for the ministry that is ahead of him. And then after the baptism, the Spirit led him in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And there in the wilderness, the devil gave Jesus the opportunity to have authority over all the nations at the cost of bowing down to Jesus, to to Satan. And Jesus knows that the authority of the nations is promised to him. He knows that. But he also knows that it is not at the cost at bowing down to Satan. But that that authority will be given to him at the cost of laying his own life. And Jesus in the wilderness prepares to say no to the temptation of Satan. And as soon as he, he's done with the temptation in the wilderness, he goes on into the, to Nazareth and he goes into the synagogue. And as he goes to the synagogue, the, the Jewish rabbis, the Jewish leaders of the synagogue, hand him the scroll of the book of Isaiah. And he opens up the scroll and he reads. And he reads the exact same verses or part of the same verses that we just read this morning from Isaiah 61. And then Jesus in Luke chapter 4 verse 21 says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. There is no question, dear friends, that Jesus saw that he himself is the one of whom Isaiah spoke about in chapter 61. That it is he who spoke in Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Jesus clearly saw himself as being the anointed one. This means that the one through whom God is planning to renew the world is Jesus. Friends, no other religious leader of any other religion would claim such authority upon himself. That he would be the one through whom God would renew the whole world. In Jesus, God was beginning to unfold the ultimate restoration, the renewal that God had promised in Isaiah. Friends, that's why we as Christians make a big deal. Not simply about worshiping God as our divine creator, but also about worshiping Jesus, the anointed Son of God, whom the Father has sent to accomplish the renewal of all creation. And Jesus accomplished his mission by being indwelt with the Spirit of God. So how we respond to Jesus makes all the difference in the world and in our lives. But what is the mission that this anointed one was sent to accomplish? In verses 1 to 3, we, we read, read why the Messiah was sent and what that mission is. We already saw glimpses of that, that the mission of the anointed one was a mission of restoration and renewal. But let's see how he describes his mission in these verses. And by the way, these are not the only verses that describe the mission of, of the anointed one. But in this, these verses, we get a, a little snippet of, of what that mission is, a particular, a particular facet of the mission of the Messiah. He says that he was sent to bring good news to the poor. What is this good news? We have already seen earlier in the book of Isaiah that the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, what he will do for God's people, he was, he was foreshadowed, predicted to, to take upon himself the sin of God's people in Isaiah 53, verse 5, is perhaps the, the greatest summary of the mission of this uh, anointed servant of the Lord. He was pierced for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The healing, the peace that God's people needed were outside of their ability to get it on their own. The healing and the peace that they needed was to be accomplished only through the substitutionary death of a servant of the Messiah in the place of sinners. Why is this news, this good news given to the poor? Why is it given to the poor? And the poor here doesn't refer merely or only to those who are poor economically or poor socially, but to those who are poor spiritually. Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount with the words, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Being poor in spirit, what does it mean? It means to recognize that we don't have the means to bring about renewal on our own. We may have resources materially. We may feel that we have all that we need physically. But spiritually, we don't. The good news that Jesus brings is that for those who recognize the poverty of their spiritual lives, for those who remain um, humbled by their need of Christ, God brings them the renewal that they need. But for those who remain proud, for those who think that they can bring renewal on their, to their own lives by their own efforts, by their own knowledge, by their own resources, for them the good news of the Messiah will have no effect. There are many reasons why someone rejects the message that the Messiah brings. But one of the reasons is because people do not recognize the poverty of their souls. It is the pride of our own hearts that often keeps us away from recognizing our need for God. We want to be people who are self-reliant, who are self-sufficient, who figure things out on our own. But friends, when it comes to our souls, the attitude of self-reliance and self-sufficiency is poison. It is deadly to our spiritual lives. The good news that the Messiah announces is only for those who come to discover and to realize the poverty of their own souls. Friends, I wonder if you have ever seen yourself as poor. I'm not talking about physically or economically, but as spiritually. If you've never experienced the poverty of spirit, well, friends, then you may not feel any need for Jesus. You may not feel any need for the good news that he brings. And the good news that the anointed one was sent by God to bring is only for those who are poor. And may I say clearly, poor in spirit. The Messiah was sent to heal the brokenhearted. We should not assume here merely those who are an emotional wreck. Rather, the brokenhearted are those who have hearts that have been broken by the reality of their sin, by the weight of sin. Friends, it is possible that for some of us, we don't experience the healing of our hearts because our hearts are not broken by our own sinfulness. Oh, we might have broken hearts because of the sin of others against us. And our hearts are much more easily broken when others sin against us. But are our hearts broken with the same ease by our own sinfulness? Jesus was sent to heal the hearts of those who are broken. 
The Messiah was also sent to proclaim a message. We already saw from, the, from earlier in Isaiah what the message was, but we also get a little more details of what he was sent to proclaim. In verse 1, we see the first pair of what this anointed one was sent to proclaim. He was sent to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now, we should not assume here mere physical uh, captivity uh, or a mere physical freedom from physical captivity. This language of proclaiming liberty and freedom is not talking about modern-day political ideas. And definitely it is not talking about uh, the virtues of American democracy, as good as those might be. Uh, we must understand these terms, this good news of freedom for captives, in the Old Testament context. The idea of proclaiming liberty was first introduced in the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus. Now just take that. The book of Leviticus is the first one who declares the language of proclaiming liberty. God says, God gave laws to the, book of, to the people of Israel, and he told them in Leviticus 25, 10, you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. God called the people of Israel to celebrate every 50th year, a year of jubilee. In, in that year, all those who previously had to sell themselves into slavery because of unpaid debt, all of them, that 50th year, would be declared free. And all their lands would be returned to them. It was the year when God would restore everything that went bad in the country the previous 50 years. The Jews rarely, if ever, celebrated that. It's amazing that now Isaiah speaks, or this anointed one speaks about the the mission of this anointed one that was sent by God, and he is using the language that was initially introduced in Leviticus about the year of Jubilee and is declaring freedom to captives. And as we keep looking, we recognize that it's declaring freedom to those who are imprisoned in the book of Isaiah. The context, the historical context, is an exile to Babylon. But this was physical experience for the people of Israel, a physical removal from the land. They lost the right to the land, if you will, or they lost the experience of the land because of their sin, because of their rebellion against God. So God now speaks through his anointed that God will restore to his people what they have lost to bring, bring, to bring liberty to captives and to open the prison of those who are bound. When Jesus came to earth, sent by the Father, the Jewish people misunderstood Jesus. They expected a physical and military and political freedom from the Roman Empire. And Jesus had to hide himself. He had to avoid any attempts to make him a political or a military leader. Friends, even today, people still misunderstand the freedom that Jesus came to bring. It's not the freedom from economic hardships. It's not the freedom from social hardships. It's not the freedom from political hardships. It's a freedom from sin. It's a freedom from the consequences of sin. It's a freedom from the consequence of eternal death. Responding to the gospel, experiencing conversion, is described by Jesus as an act of freeing captives. One of the well-known hymns in the history of the, Christi of the Christian church describes this reality well. 
in the hymn, And Can It Be, that Wesley penned, the third stanza, or one of the stanzas of that song, says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thy eye, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Oh, dear friends, the news of the gospel is a news that frees people from the chains of sin, of bondage. This is the experience that people have when God awakens us to a, from spiritual death and brings us life in Christ. It is a message that we have been freed from the bondage of sin and death. Let me ask you this morning, have you experienced that freedom, that message that declares you free from sin and death? It is only through Jesus. If you have not experienced that, that freedom that is given to us in Christ, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. I would love to talk to you what that means. Because this experience is real, dear friends. For those of us who have been Christians for a while, the Christian life is a growth in sanctification, which means that because Christ has freed us from the bondage of sin, we now have the God-given ability to say no to sin in our daily lives. That does not mean that it's always easy to say no to sin. Quite frankly, it's often difficult because of, our, of the old sinful nature that still lies within us. It's also difficult because of the lure of sin and the deception of sin. But be sure of this, that God has broken the power of sin in the lives of those who have turned away and turned to Christ and asked Christ to save them. The Messiah came to proclaim liberty to captives. But he also came to proclaim another message in verse 2, he claimed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Notice that the, the Messiah proclaimed both the year of the Lord's favor, which could be another hint at the, at the, at the year of the Lord's jubilee, the, the favor that God grants. And by the way, when Jesus came to Nazareth and, and read from the, from the book of Isaiah, he stopped at this moment. He stopped at the moment of proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. And he said, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. This means that Jesus has inaugurated the year of the Lord's favor. It has been fulfilled. We are living in it. But if we keep reading in the New Testament, the ministry of Jesus also speaks about the warning of the future judgment of God. Jesus didn't stop with proclaiming just a year of the Lord's favor. He stopped there to say that that was fulfilled in that day. The, year, the day of God's judgment is still laying ahead in the future. And Jesus gave plenty of warnings about that as well. Friends, Isaiah 63 will unpack for us what that day of vengeance will involve. But even the comparison between vengeance and favor, a day versus a year, gives you a sense of God's mercy. A year of favor versus a day of vengeance. Well, friends, as we consider both of these realities, we are tempted to separate these, to speak only about the year of, of the Lord's favor and not warn people of the danger of the coming day of vengeance. Friends, if you take spiritual things lightly, if you consider that you can ignore spiritual things for a long time, 
Friend, this, let this warning challenge you and each of us. Those who ignore the Lord's favor will face a day of his vengeance. You will not be able to ignore that day, nor will you be able to withstand it. So consider now responding to God so that his favor may be upon you before the day of his ju- of vengeance arrives. And the Messiah was sent to comfort all who mourn. In verse 3, we see what that means. There's a few instead ofs introduced in verse 3. Uh, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Now you may wonder, what do ashes have to do with all this? Well, in the Old Testament, again, everything we have to read, everything in light of its context. We've got to read Isaiah in light of its Old Testament context. In the Old Testament, when someone was mourning deeply, one of the rituals for mourning was not only to put on sackcloth on you, was also to sprinkle ashes over your head. It was a visible sign that showed how desperately broken things have become. God says that he's going to he send his anointed one to comfort those who mourn. And part of the comforting of those who mourn is to give them something. To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. To give them the oil of gladness instead of mourning. And to give them the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Oh, friends, on this side of eternity, these new realities are experienced only in glimpses. But these glimpses are real glimpses nonetheless. Christians are people who indeed continue to experience the brokenness of a corrupt world. But in the midst of such brokenness, we can look ahead to what God has promised to give us in Christ. And because of that, even our current broken realities can be lived with a sweetness of spirit and with a praise to God that one day he will make all things right. That is why Christians still suffer in this world, but we suffer with hope that God will replace mourning with eternal rejoicing. So far, we've looked at how God was planning to accomplish his renewal. God was planning to accomplish his renewal through his anointed one, through Jesus And we saw what Jesus was planning to do as he came to bring about that renewal. But we have two points left in the sermon. God's renewal affects his people. The second part, God's renewal affects his people. And we've already seen already how this renewal is affecting God's people through the exchanges we have seen in verse 3. But we see something more in verse 3. We see that God's renewal will make people righteous. Notice in verse 3 that that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he, the Lord, may be glorified. In other words, this exchange that God promised, the, the ashes with the headdress, the, the mourning with the oil of gladness, the faint spirit with a garment of praise, all of that is aimed so that God's people will be made righteous, that their righteousness will be so fruitful in their lives They will be so full of strength that people around them 
would call them oaks of righteousness. The righteousness that God will give to his people will be a permanent righteousness. As illustrated, the imagery of, of oaks growing up. It will also become clear that the righteousness of God's people is not their own doing, but it's God's doing. It's people will come to recognize that they are the planting of the Lord. The result that people will experience will be so great that the only explanation is that God has been at work among his people to bring about these changes. Friends, this is why we have been intentional in recovering a God-centeredness in all that we do as a church. We want to focus not on what we do, but on what God is doing. Friend, if you're a Christian, I wonder if others can say about you that God is at work in your life. Are they able to see that God is in your life? Do you treat people at work in such a way that if they found out that you were a Christian, would they be surprised negatively? God's renewal will affect people such that others around them will see them as, as oaks of righteousness planted by the Lord. The God's renewal will also restore what is broken. We see images in verses 4 through 7. We see images that describe the renewal of God's people, and this time it's the images of rebuilding ancient ruins, raising up former devastations, repairing the ruined cities, and the devastations of many generations. Some people think here that these verses might be talking about a physical rebuilding of physical Israel. Some of that has indeed happened with a return from the Babylonian exile. But this verse is talking not merely about physical rebuilding, but about a spiritual rebuilding. This is an imagery and a promise that when God will renew, He will restore what has been broken, ruined, and devastated. This picture also tells us that the ruins of our lives are not too big for God to handle. Nothing will keep God away from rebuilding the lives of his people who have been broken by sin and by devastation. In verse 6, these restored, the restored people of God are called by a new name. They're called the priests of the Lord. Why is this new status important? Because from the beginning of the people of Israel, from the book of Exodus, God had declared them to be a royal priesthood and a holy nation. But throughout the Old Testament, we see that the people of God have failed to live as a royal priesthood and as a holy nation. So now Isaiah says that when God will renew his people, they will finally be called by this priestly status. By the way, the apostle Peter speaks about the church this way. In 1 Peter 2.9, sermon we have heard just a few weeks ago, preached by Pastor Taylor. We heard how Peter described the, the church, the Christians. He said, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Well, friends, Peter is talking about the church. The church includes Jews who turn to Christ and Gentiles who turn to Christ. All those who turn away from their sin, all those who profess faith and reliance on Christ for salvation are part of this new people that God is rebuilding and He is giving them the new status of, a, of being priests for God. That's why, dear friends, each person, every person who has acknowledged their sin has turned away from their sin and trusted in Christ. They're not only saved, but they are made priests 
for God. Every Christian is a priest for God. That's why, as a church, we believe that ultimately the governance of the local church is entrusted to the members of the church. That's why, even though we have a plurality of elders leading the congregation, we are a congregationally governed church because the entire community of renewed people, the renewed people of God, function as priests and as ministers of God. This also means, dear friends, that the work of the ministry belongs not to the elders or the pastors of the church, but it belongs to the people of the church. We are not the priests. You are the priest. We are elders. We're pastors to equip you for the ministry that the Lord has given to the congregation. So that's why we don't have priests in the Baptist church. In the Baptist church, the priests are the people of the Lord who have been renewed by Jesus. Praise be to God. God's renewal will also put away shame and dishonor. In verse 7, God declares another pair of exchanges that the people will experience. He says, instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, there shall be rejoicing in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. Don't you love how real God is? He gets real with his people and he speaks of their shame, of their dishonor. Part of the painful experience that they've had is the experience of shame and dishonor. Friends, do you realize that God knows the shame that his people have been experiencing? He knows the dishonor that these people have experienced and he wants to do something about it. He wants to exchange it. He wants to exchange it with what? With joy. Instead of your shame, there should be a double portion. This double portion, what is it? Well, keep reading. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Through their sin, people lost their land. They lost the inheritance that God has given them. But God will take away the shame. And the joy that, of that new inheritance will be everlasting. It will never be taken away. That everlasting joy means that the inheritance will be everlasting. It will never be taken away. Oh, friends, this is the inheritance that God promised to his renewed people through Jesus in the new covenant. And we see in the last part of this chapter a final point, a third point of God's renewal. Not only God's renewal is through his anointed servant, through his anointed one, God's renewal affects his people. But thirdly, God's renewal is God's gift. In verses 8 through 11, we see the focus turning back to God. God is speaking of his own character to ensure that what he says will actually take place. In verse 8, God speaks about and promises that he will give them their recompense and will make an everlasting covenant with his people. In other words, God is committing his people to himself, and he's committing himself to his people. There's no restoration. There's no renewal apart from the new covenant that God is making with his people. The local church, dear friends, is a visible manifestation of what it means to live out in a covenant community with God on the basis of the new covenant that God promised in Jesus. Tonight when we will gather again as a covenant community to celebrate the covenant meal, to celebrate the, the supper of the, uh, the body and blood of the Lord, it is through that blood of the Lord that God instituted the new covenant. The new covenant is not just a me and Jesus relationship individualistically. The new covenant speaks about a covenant community 
so that even our life together as members of this congregation is a display of what it means to live together as a bound together people who are bound together with their Lord and who eat together the meal of the new community, the Lord's Supper. Friends, in verse 10 and 11, we get a glimpse of God's guarantee of this restoration. Not only does he say that he will do a new covenant, but in verse 10 and 11, we see that a speaker, and here again, the speaker is unclear. Is it, is it Isaiah? Is it the anointed one? Is it the restored people? We don't know. It's unclear who speaks in verse 11. But what is very clear is that he is greatly rejoicing. He's rejoicing in God. Why? Because he, because God has clothed him. He says, because God, because he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. Friends, in other words, where is salvation coming from? From God. In this picture, salvation is pictured through, through a garment, through a robe. Who's putting that robe on? God is. We don't save ourselves. God saves us. He's the one who grants salvation to us, and he's the one who applies that salvation to our lives. God dresses up his people in the robe of his salvation. Then in verse 11, we see another picture of how God guarantees salvation. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as the garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. The imagery here makes another point, that salvation is not merely something that's bestowed upon us as a garment. It is also a new life that grows inside of us just as plants begin growing out of the earth. Who causes that new life of righteousness and praise to grow inside of us? It's not us. It's the Lord. It's the Lord who will cause that righteousness and that praise to sprout up before all the nations. Friends, this means that salvation and righteousness are clearly the gift and the work of God inside of us. Friends, our confidence that salvation righteousness and praise to God will affect all the nations is not in our own effort, is not in our own strategy, but in God who brings us about. Does this mean that we should not worry about speaking to people about Jesus? Absolutely not. We should speak to people about, people about Jesus. Jesus commanded to go and make disciples of all nations, but we have the confidence that it is God who will make that righteousness and that praise to sprout up before all the nations. In this chapter, we see the great renewal that God has promised his people. It's a renewal that comes through Jesus, through his anointed one. It's a renewal that comes to his God's people and will affect them, will bring about a permanent transformation. And it's a renewal that is given to us as God's gift. He alone is the one who causes this renewal to grow and bear much fruit in our lives and in, among the nations.